Carrie Max Cook spent 20 years on death row in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice System for a horrific crime that he did not commit. I'm your host, Leah. Phil here. And I'm Steve. If you haven't listened to part one of this two-part episode, please stop, go back, and listen to that one first. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Now, before we jump back into our interview with Carrie, I just want to reiterate that we pride ourselves on being a family-friendly show. There are these two episodes titled Carrie Cook. We will be discussing some topics of ex- that involve extreme violence and other matters of an adult nature. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Strongly advised. And I want to start by telling you about the book he wrote of his horrible experience. It's called Chasing Justice, My Story of Freeing Myself After Two Decades on Death Row for a Crime I Didn't Commit. Carrie's book was published in 2008 and is available on Amazon and will soon be available in a Kindle version. I'm going to read you the summary. Carrie Cook is an innocent man who wrongly served two decades in Texas's notorious death house for the brutal 1977 rape and murder of 21-year-old Linda Jo Edwards. His struggle for freedom is said to be one of the worst cases of police and prosecutorial misconduct in American history. In the summer of 1977, Cook was staying in Tyler, Texas. He met an attractive young woman named Linda Edwards and was invited back to her apartment for a drink and left his fingerprints on the sliding glass door. Four days later, Miss Edwards was found brutally murdered. When the police dusted for prints, they found Cook's and immediately arrested him. Edward Jackson testified that Cook confessed to the murder during a jailhouse conversation. Jackson was set free only to kill again several years later. Cook, on the other hand, was convicted and sentenced to death. He was thrown into a world for which no one could be prepared, and he survived beatings, sexual abuse, and depression. All the while, he fought against a justice system that was determined to keep him quiet and loath to admit a mistake. Though th- through the work of a crusading group of lawyers who forced a series of retrials, his case made, it way- made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ordered the case to be reconsidered. It wasn't until the spring of 1999 that Cook was finally able to put the nightmare behind him. Long-suppressed DNA evidence had linked James Mayfield, Linda Edwards's ex-lover, to the crime. Now, the summary says that Carrie was able to put the injustice and the nightmare behind him, but as we are going to find out in the rest of the interview, that is not entirely the case. That's correct. There's still things that he's facing even today. So back to our interview with Carrie. Uh, where we pick up, it's now 1987. Carrie has been on death row for eight years. His lawyers tell him that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals is bound to rule in his favor. However, they do not. During those eight years, Carrie has endured brutal treatment by the inmates at Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Now, in addition to facing the death penalty, Carrie learns that his brother, who he was so close to, was murdered. As horror piles upon horror, Carrie begins hurting himself and actually makes a suicide attempt. He is then moved to the Ellis II psychiatric unit. Your brother, you got you got this word from from home. Was it a phone call or my a- dad called uh, the Chapman Timmons and they brought me to his office. First time I'd uh, 
the chaplain, out, chaplain's office. Yes, and he informed me. That hey, your brother I, had been murdered, right? I thought it was my dad was dead. And then we said in the phone, he said, he said, I got your dad on the phone here from the funeral home. And I thought, funeral home? Dad? Yeah. I was already preparing, going down the hall handcuffed. Yeah. It, it's my it's my daddy had cancer. Yeah. He he's they're calling me at ten. Well, how am I gonna I can't cry. No matter what, you can't yeah. let people see you cry. The guards right. will go back and tell the inmates what a girl you are. So yeah. you can't be seen crying. So I'm prepared for that. So with Chapman Timmons, I sit in a chair, they take off the handcuffs. The Skeens, that was the guard's name, not Jack Skeens, but yeah. his name's last name was Skeens in Bradford. Those are the two guards that took me to Chapman Timmons' office. He said, and Chapman Timmons said, uh, 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 Carrie, uh, your dad's on the phone. He's at the funeral home. He needs to talk to you. Uh, and I, I'm trying to make that transition from what? And I pick up, and I haven't held a phone in 15 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, Daddy? He says, he's gone, son. He didn't say hello, yeah. Carrie. I love you. He just said he's gone, son. And a real like it really struggled to get that out. He didn't know how he was going to tell me, so he just said it. He said yeah. he's gone, son. And I said, as you look in the books, I remember like it was yesterday. I said, who's gone? What What are you talking about? He said, Darwin. He was killed last night. He's gone, son. And then he starts this faraway tunnel is. Now, he wouldn't want you to give up. Carrie, you can't give up. You're going to get out. Yeah. You may be much older, but you're going to get out. And I'm not hearing you. I dropped the uh, – no, Skeens, I'm crying. I'm starting to cry. I can't yeah. – I dropped my head. Skeens, or maybe Bradford, he was uh, – Skeens was a real butthead, but Bradford was kind of kind and sensitive. He takes the phone away from me, and he tells my dad, Mr. Cook, yeah, this is Officer Bradford. Um your son can't talk anymore. Uh, we're going to take care of him, though. We're going to take care of him, though. Okay, Mr. Cook, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about your son. You're dying, but he can't talk anymore, okay? He gives the phone back to Timmons. Timmons said something and handcuffed me, and I'm going down a hallway, and I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm exploding like the 4th of July with emotions. I'm, yeah. I'm looking down. I'm trying to wipe my eyes. I can't go back in the cell block crying. And so... Uh, you know, I go back to my cell, and uh, I can't believe. I just remember by that time, uh, Def Leppard, uh, Love Bites, and I had a small little radio. TDC had started letting us buy right. little radios, and uh, uh, <clears throat> Love Bite was playing on a, a Houston radio station, yeah. and I, I burst, I burst into tears, crying. I wouldn't eat. I wanted to die. I'd cut myself several times. Right. Uh, uh, hurt myself really seriously bad and uh I, I wanted to die so I stopped eating and they told me they were gonna put me on intravenous uh fluids if right. I didn't that's how I ended up at Ellis too. Right. I was gonna end up at uh uh on intravenous they were gonna force me, force it. Right. And I've always <laughs> believe this or not, I was my whole life was afraid of needles. Going to Germany was always a series of inoculations and sometimes right. in the butt and they put thermometers in, in your rectum. And I just hated that process. I've always hated shots. So yeah. that, that, that broke me from the stupor. And I thought, okay, okay. So I went out to shower. That's when in my book, Leon King comes in the shower and rapes me. Yeah. And, and I let him because. So you, you've endured the loss. Good friend in prison. Then you heard about your brother. Then you heard that you're, that, that the, Criminal appeals uh, is okay. My execution okay. Your execution, and then you get raped in the shower. And I forgot this, and I forgot to tell you, I have 
uh, P-O-S-S-Y carved all over my behind. So that's what the treatment center, when you were there, they yeah. first saw the, yeah. the treatment center and the guards. And it's, holy crap, what's happened to this guy? They knew I couldn't have done it myself. You can tell by looking at it. Well, you know, but, at the time you got to Texas, to, to the Texas prison, they had this crazy system in place called the building tender. Yeah. In which inmates yep. actually guarded other inmates. Now, that was done away with in about 86, I think. Ruiz versus Estelle. It was yeah. the longest running, costliest lawsuit in American history. Right. Where the inmates were given the... Uh, knives. They had. They, uh, they. They were built. They. They were cr- uh, career criminals. Right. Murder, rape, pedophilia. And they. They guarded other prisoners. You know. They brutalized other exactly. prisoners, and they. They were Teflon coated. They could stab you. They could hawk you. They could brutalize you, and there were no consequences. Right. But That's when you, they moved you from Ellis One to Ellis Two, which is the psychiatric care unit, and that's where I met you. That's where I was uh, instructed as a teacher. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, uh, the, the school was, I had a classroom half the day with inmates that could come to the, to the classroom. But then there were other inmates that were not allowed off of the cell block for one reason or other. Either they were, there had been a threat against them or there was a, they were considered too dangerous or whatever. So I would go in the afternoons and I would actually teach inmates right through the cell door. And so, um, you know, uh, that's when I met you. And I, I remember, talking to you and you were telling me your, your story. I always let people do that first. And I said, and I would always say, I can't help you with that, but I can help you get your education while you're here. Why don't we work on that? And so that's what we did. But in the process of working with you, I think I was there two days a week. I would, I would explain things to you, leave you some work to do. And then when I came back the next time, you would show me what you'd done. Can and I tell it, you this one thing before you, you sure. go on? Because I want you to remember this. Yeah. I think I told you. I think I told the Houston Chronicle. I think I I told you when I, I first got to see you again at your uh, your your retirement ceremony. Right. Uh, Leah, uh, here is this guy, uh, young. Uh, uh, we have a fr- picture of us standing yes. at your cell. Yes, he has free world. Clo- he has free world clothes on. He may have a, a slight scent of cologne. I, I just know that he's 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 at my cell and. Uh, I did this with everyone. This, this is what made the, all these false jailhouse confession stories that the prosecution used against me so painful because everybody I met, no matter how dangerous they could be to me, I, I would, I, I collected those Dallas Morning News stories like a Bible right. and I had them. And that, those are some of the only things they let me have at Ellis 2 on suicide precaution because, uh, it was part of my legal files. They couldn't yeah. deny me that and they were in it. So Stephen Meeker is at my cell and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at him. He tells me who he works for the Wyndham school department and I'm shoving these, these newspaper articles. It's, I'm innocent. And he, he, try, he kind of ignores that because everyone says that. That, that's not my job. I'm, I'm a teacher. And I said, but look, look, read this. Inmate was key evidence in Cook Case Falls. They made up this. They made up that. I never, I was in solitary confinement. I don't even know this guy that said I confessed. Carrie, Carrie, that's not my, and he, he's looking at him. Okay, okay. I read him. And he says, <laughs> he says, hands pushes him back through the cell. What do you want? I want an education. Yeah. That I can help you with. That's right. And that's how we became. And as I got to working with, I realized how intelligent you are. You know, you you picked up on things real quickly. And uh, so I'm making a long story short. We were it was a GED program, and uh, so the time came. We gave you a practice test, and you did really well on it. And I said, I think you're ready to take the actual GED test. Uh, there were five different parts of it: uh, social studies, science, reading, language arts, and math. 
two out of the five, you got the very highest score two that was five. possible. Two out of the five, and you wow. ended up overall with a very, very high average. So, in other words, you went through two of the tests without missing a single question. So, you know, wow. that, that gives you an, uh, an idea of how intelligent uh, uh, Carrie is. I got this so, on tape now. So, that's right. <laughs> you know, we really appreciate all of our listeners. And if you really enjoy podcasts, here's another one that you might be interested in. Texas is best known for the scorching heat, longhorn steers, and incomparable barbecue. Beyond Big Bend and Big Trucks, however, lies something dark, Big Crime. Hi y'all, my name is Vincent. Join me on Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, as we dive deep into the facts and theories of one of the 20,000 unsolved Texas cases each week. From the mysterious 1974 disappearances of Rachel Trelisa, Renee Wilson, and Julie Mosley, collectively known as the Fort Worth Missing Trio, to the orange Texas abduction and murder of four-year-old Denaria Finley in 2002. To hear those and nearly 200 other stories of unsolved homicides and missing persons cases, subscribe to Gone Cold, Texas True Crime, wherever you fulfill your podcast needs. Quoting from Carrie's book, I finished my case for innocence in January 1989 and sent it to the editor of the Dallas Morning News. I couldn't believe my luck when the editor wrote back to say that he felt my case history had merit and that he was assigning my story to a reporter named David Hammers to look into the facts and circumstances that led to my arrest, conviction, and death sentence. He wrote that he thought the appeals court ruling would be swift back then and had planned to resume the articles after the court ruled. Meanwhile, the news had been investigating other instances of corruption in Smith County. Smith County is where Tyler, Texas is located. The articles grabbed the national media's attention and became the subject of a 2020 primetime special entitled Crime and Corruption Marks the Small East Texas Town of Tyler, Runaway Justice. The Dallas Morning News became interested in Kerry's case. They began investigating and publishing major headline stories about his, his situation. They had also been investigating other instances of corruption in Smith County, where Tyler's located. These articles garnered national publicity, which eventually led to the state of Texas ordering Smith County to grant him a new trial. And, and we have those articles. I'm going to post some of those uh, to our, right. our Facebook and Instagram. And I also have the 1977 probable cause affidavit here from the arresting officer. This is the document needed in order to substantiate probable probable cause in order to get an arrest warrant. I'll read a portion of the affidavit. Please note that when it says affiant, it is referring to the arresting officer, Eddie Clark, as he is the author of the affidavit, and this was his statement about the case. And again, this is just a portion of it. Affiant interviewed Paula Rudolph on June 10, 1977, the owner of the apartment in which the crime occurred who stated that the premises were rented by here, by here as her resident and habitation and that she had not given the said Carrie Mack Cook in this affidavit. I think they got a, they could have his middle name as Mack instead of Max. Max, but yeah, Max. M-A-X. Um, but she had 
she had not given the said Carrie Max Cook consent to enter her residence and that her apartment was never at any time open to the public and that, to her knowledge, Carrie Max Cook had never been in the apartment. That the said Paula Rudolph further stated to Affiant that in the early morning hours of June 10th, 1977, she arrived home from a date and saw a man standing at the entrance to the bedroom where the crime occurred. Further, that shortly thereafter, she heard the sliding glass doors of the rear of the apartment being opened, then closed, and thereafter heard the patio gate at rear and the and outside the apartment open. Affiant was present during the autopsy of the deceased on the aforetold date by Dr. Virgil Gonzalez, a licensed and certified medical doctor and pathologist who stated to Affiant that it was his opinion that death was caused by one or more of the wounds and injuries to the person of deceased, and further informed Affiant that after death, the bottom portion of the deceased's lip was cut off, that deep and wide cuts and stabs were made on the breasts of the deceased, and that multiple stab wounds, all after death, were made in the lower abdomen and vaginal area, and that the major portion of the vaginal area was cut and stabbed and completely removed from the body. Affiant has has been informed by Sergeant Doug Collard of the Identification Division of the Tyler Police Department that he lifted latent fingerprints from a sliding glass door at the rear of the scene of the crime. Sergeant Collard made a comparison on August 3, 1977, between these latent fingerprints with fingerprints known to those of Carrie Max Cook obtained from the Jacksonville, Texas Police Department. Sergeant Collard stated to Affiant that the fingerprints found at the scene were identical to those of Carrie Max Cook as shown on the Jacksonville Police Department fingerprint card. Sergeant Collard stated to Affiant that it is his opinion the latent fingerprints were 8 to 12 hours old at the time he lifted them, which was at 9 a.m. on June 10, 1977. So there's a problem there, isn't there? Yeah, there's quite a bit to unpack here. First, when referring to Paula Rudolph having seen the man in her apartment, the part of her official statement about the man having short silver-colored hair is conspicuously left out. And then, yes, further, the fingerprint expert goes on to record on record as saying that he could tell the fingerprints found on the sliding glass door were matched to carry were 8 to 12 hours old, so they must belong to the murderer because they coincided with the time of death. So he figured out how to age <clears throat> fingerprints. That's out. impressive. That's right. It's a huge red herring. Okay, so the jury <laughs> bought the testimony of the fingerprint expert, and why wouldn't why, they? Why not? Yeah. But according to a proof-of-concept paper published in Analytical Chemistry by National Institute of Standards and Technology Chemists, Shin Murimoto, Murimoto mm-hmm. I think, and Edward Sisko stated... Quote, people have tried for 30 or 40 years to date fingerprints, usually by looking at changes in bulk chemical properties, says Cisco. But the specific chemical makeup of the fingerprint varies hugely from person to person, and the chemical changes with time depended, depend heavily on the environment. So fingerprints can be aged to a certain degree, like they can tell a diff- the difference between a fresh fingerprint and one that's been there for weeks or months. Right. But as far as putting it within hours, that no. just doesn't, doesn't it, that, it doesn't work. That's junk science. It and doesn't not work that way. And not in 1977. Exactly. So, Carrie, I'm going to go through some of the the latter parts of your story. Um, and um, uh, I know there's multiple, multiple details about all of them. But uh, let's talk about the second trial that came in uh, 1992. The state basically said you, to the county, you have to have 
Uh, you have to retry him at that point, right? Something really happened, uh, really interesting happened um, as the jury was examining some evidence. Do you remember what happened? Yes. Uh, she Basically, okay. they claimed that you cut off her body parts, right. hauled them off in her stockings. Right. In 1994, at my third trial, uh, uh, Dr. Linda Norton, a certified pathologist for the Dallas County Medical uh Dallas County, she came in and testified. She was a certified forensic forensic uh, pathologist. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gonzalez wasn't, but she said um, she testified that no reputable uh, pathologist, uh, something as significant as missing body parts, right. could fail to mention that to list that uh, as, as as a forensic matter right. in, in an autopsy. Okay, but they weren't um, mentioned in, no. in hers. No, in the, his 1977 autopsy that he says he uh, conducted it in, in the sink at the funeral yeah. home. Uh, uh, he never he never lists any in his time of death is two hours before that. Yeah. Uh, not not the new one you just read by the affiant there, right. Eddie Clark. But uh, she he says that uh, uh, he never mentions anything about. But he says macerated, uh, yeah. s- uh, stabbed. Yeah. All right, he comes to the trial to support this affidavit. So Eddie Clark can't be charged with perjury or or or, or this get me acquitted by a jury. Yeah. He doesn't bring any notes. He doesn't bring anything. But yeah. he never mentions that new brand new time of death that he up two hours. Yeah. When a time I didn't have an alibi all of a sudden or missing body parts. So uh, the the stocking. There was a there was a police officer that now is a lawyer somewhere in Houston. This is 15, 20 years, 20 years ago. He calls one of my investigators and says, that's one of the first people to arrive at that scene. He said, both of those stockings were there at the time. Right. He said, someone stuffed that uh, stocking in the pants leg. I don't know who, uh, maybe Eddie Clark or one of the other detectives that came there. But he said, they were both there. He said, I was one of the first detectives on the scene. I saw him. So anyway, fast forward. Vivi Gonzalez testifies uh, that, that uh, all of a sudden there's body parts and and then uh, missing and yeah yeah and then the the the, uh, the Michael Thompson says one of the stockings is missing from the crime scene and first he tells the jury and one of the jurors they had to recess she threw up said the re- I submit to you. I submit to you the reason we couldn't find those body parts at the crime scene is because that defendant ate them, probably ate them. And then that was one thing. And then he tells the jury after, you know, and and resumes closing argument when the jury has, you know, uh, composed itself after such a shocking uh, closing argument statement. He says, I submit to you that, that those body parts went out in that stocking. That's why it's missing in the body parts, too. Yeah. Well, to answer your question about what significant, among other things, occurred in the 1992 hung yeah. jury. Well, the, the jury uh, wanted to know the height of the victim. So they, they broke the seal of the evidence bag containing her blue jeans. They shook them out and out fell the stocking. So um, the, the jury, 14 years later, found the stocking while the, they were examining The so-called the missing stocking. Right. Smith County DA uh, David Dobbs, who was as bad as it gets in terms of yeah. corruption, being a liar, a cheater, and doing whatever it takes to win, really bad. I mean, worse than mm-hmm. anyone, you, any DA anywhere in America. Uh, what does he do? He goes to the... Uh, he goes to the, the foreman of the, of, the, of the jury, 1978 jury that convicted me. Right. He gets an affidavit from him and submits it to the court. And the, he says, I personally searched those jeans and we looked through those jeans as a jury. That, that stocking was not in those pants leg. Fast forward, the stocking is sent to the 
Doug Stone Forensic Institute in Dallas and compares it with the other one, mm-hmm. it's the missing stocking. The They're one. identical. Yeah. So it's it's what this is what I'm facing when you say retrying you. Well, this is the kind of shenanigans yeah. that that they always do, and there's no there's no accountability. There's no one stopping them. Right. Not even the Court of Criminal Appeals. So, so they found the stocking, and Linda Norton uh, exposed in a very powerful way. Yeah. There were no missing body parts. Right. That Vivi Gonzalez was lying. So then the the that jury was hung. Then the nineteen ninety two retrial was hung. So you have a, you go back to prison, back to Smith County. Yes, and I'm retried a year later, and this time I'm convicted in 1994. And so in 1994, the trial is again, and the judge actually dismissed your attorneys? Yes, and so I'm petitioning to the judge to to appoint Paul, uh, Paul Nugent, my Houston lawyer, yeah. and the judge makes this shocking decision. He thanks Paul Nugent for having done a wonderful job, too good of a job. He got me a hung jury, uh-huh. and he dismisses him, and he appoints two uh uh, uh, Tyler attorneys that represent everyone charged with murder They're in Smith the, County. Yeah. And everyone goes to prison with, uh, Lawanda Legal defenders, Lacey. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lawanda Lacey and he kept Jim Brookshire from Williamson County yeah. that was appointed, uh, as, uh, and, and he fired my lawyers. So, you know, because they, there was no money, but your lawyers were willing to continue working pro on bono. your case. Yes. Pro bono. Thank God. And yet he still, he, he the, the judge didn't allow that. The judge uh, w- w- wouldn't allow it until Paul Nugent said, I'm, I'm doing this free of charge, Your Honor. Uh, uh, Mr. Cook doesn't want Jim Wright, doesn't yeah. want Lawanda Lacey from Tyler, Texas, yeah. who won't stand up to the court system right. there. Uh, I, I will still represent him. And so he, he did. And then so he did have to let him. Okay. Yeah. Yes. All right. Let's, um, let's pick up with where we were just a minute ago. Your, your third trial, you were convicted again and, so then you're, you're appealing to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. I'm going to read a little section out of your book. Uh, this is Paul Nugent, your, your, um, your lawyer. Paul Nugent agreed to appeal my conviction and new death sentence. He completed his brief in July of 1995 and sent me a copy, a whopping 213 pages. It detailed 55 points of error that had been committed by Jones and the prosecution and had resulted in my reconviction. Paul delineated the history of systemic police and prosecutorial chicanery that had spanned 18 years and three trials and had passed through two generations of Tyler District Attorney's Office. Though these facts and the law seemed to be on my side, I was afraid to hope. I knew my chances of getting this now very conservative court to reverse my conviction a second time uh, no matter how persuasive the facts and legal arguments to support them were slim to none. So you, you, you appeal to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, uh, but you know that it's a, a, um, conservative uh, pretty, court. pretty long shot, you know, because it's a very conservative court. All now, nine Republican law now, and order judges. Exactly. Now, in your book, you talk about something else that kind of happens along this time. You, you, you meet a family called the Rain, R-A-I-N-E. Is it Rain or Rainy? Rain, Rain R-A-I-N-E. The Rain family. Richard Rain and, and his uh, wife, Michaela. Would you kids. talk about them a little bit and what they meant to you? Yes, this family, uh, Richard Rain, Michaela Rain, uh, begins, begins to write me. They, she had four children, two daughters and uh, two sons. Right. They were real little at the time. Uh, and uh, she she would constantly tell me in letters and then when she would visit – that 
Carrie, you've got to let go and let God. You've done everything you can do. Uh, uh, you've, you've gone beyond, you've gone the Jericho mile. You've done everything possible that can be done and it's not working. You know, and then she quoted that, that portion of the Bible about you can, uh, serve, you can't serve mammon and, 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 you know, that. And then she said, uh, can't serve God and, and mammon, mammon or money. Yeah. yeah right, and right. she said, uh, uh, you, you, uh, uh, you have to let go and let God. And, you know, after a while, Joe had been murdered. My dad died of cancer, which is, mm-hmm. he was Probably dying when I got to Ellis too. When I met you, he yeah. was, he was already right. dying. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, she started sending me these, these, these books uh, uh, and so forth. And one of them. Uh, they were like faith, faith-based faith books. Book right? of apologetics, yeah. you know. Uh, everything is gone. I'm back on death row in 1994. And I'm convinced I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to be executed. And I thought to myself, is this the way I want to die? Uh, uh, if there's, I loved my brother, my mom and dad with everything uh, in, in my heart. And I said, if there's any chance to see him again, if there is a God, and I believe there is, mm-hmm. and I believe in Jesus, I believe he was the chosen one. He was the Messiah. I came full circle, and I thought, the only way I'm ever going to see my family again is if, if, is if I go, I, I renew my faith, and got on my knees, and I, I cried hard, as hard as I cried when Darwin was murdered, which I don't even want to remember that. I couldn't catch my breath. I thought I was going to choked to death um i cried so hard and it was constant all the time thinking of every every song every thought of Dorwain right. growing up but and then i asked god you know to to to, to take take this away from me help me uh uh help me renew re- renew my faith uh don't 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 abandon me like i've abandoned you mm-hmm. come uh, let me come i come back to you with an open heart uh because only you can save me now. I can't save myself. And I remember telling God on my knees that this is not about, oh, yeah, God, I'm not asking you anymore to set me free. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you to get me out. That's not what this is about. I, all I'm asking you is to forgive me for abandoning you. All I'm asking is accept accept me uh, as, a, as, a, as a child of God. And I'm not asking to be free. I'm asking you to give me the strength to be executed. And that was my prayer because that's what I believe. And from that moment on, here's something very significant. I kept every sliver of paper, everything that had to do with my case, from handwritten notes to police mm-hmm. reports to trial, tra- and Steve, this was not easy. I was indigent. Right. It was it was the respect people had for me when I wrote them and begged for things. Mm-hmm. They would send me. All right, Carrie, here now. Don't don't write me anymore. I don't I don't want to mess with you anymore. Here here's your record mm-hmm. or this or the police reports. Yeah, and I had it all. It was my Bible, and God knew that. I said, God, I've been reading the wrong Bible. Yeah. I've lived off the wrong Bible all these years. And I was on this work capable program then where, uh, you know, Martin Gorelli ex- escaping the death row four or five, whatever it was mm-hmm. called, climbed over the fence. They found him dead in the Trinity River, or at least him. Well, they moved them to the, L- the Livingston unit then. They, they canceled the death row program. We made guards uniforms and stuff. They yeah. had in and outs like general population. So every time the door opened, I'd take a deep breath because I knew I couldn't come back from this. This was really, mm-hmm. really letting go and letting God. The door would open. I take a deep breath. 
because this was like letting go of uh, being a mother and letting go of a child almost. I'd take bundle after bundle, throw them in the large death row barrel of trash. All the stuff you'd collected. Yeah, and I couldn't get it back. You couldn't take it back. I'd go yeah. back to myself. The next hour, on the hour, the yeah. in and out, I'd carry another bundle, carry another bundle until it was all gone. And then I, the, the door shut for the last time. I went, now I let go. Now I let God. So it's just you and God at that point. And <laughs> a short time later, you can't, you can't write this because it really happened. A short time later. You never get phone calls. You, you, I only saw the phone when my dad, right. uh, my yeah. brother, was murdered. So the guards come to my cell. I was going to read that. Do you mind if I read it real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Because it's probably going to be written better than I can say it. <laughs> so you got you got to notice you had a phone call. As I walked down the hall, I was concerned about my mom that, that my mom had died. She's the only one left. Uh, what else could I be going? Uh, why else could I be going to the office to use the phone? I stepped into the office, and an officer named Wooten handed the phone to me. It's your lawyer, he said, smiling. Hello, I croaked into the foggy, uh, still foggy from my sleep. Good morning, Carrie. It's Paul Nugent. Have you heard? Paul, how did you arrange this phone? Never mind, I said. Heard what? Is it my mama, Paul? Carrie, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reversed your conviction this morning, Paul said. I pulled the phone from my ear and looked around. Everyone in the office was staring at me and smiling. I pressed the receiver back again to my ear. In that moment, my hopes quickly skyrocketed, but then fell back down to earth as hard as they, uh, they had risen. I knew that I would that it would mean nothing if the court had simply reversed my conviction on another punishment phase issue or on some other technicality. Quote, what did they reverse it on? I said into the phone with my eyes closed. Wanting, uh, wanting, but dreading the answer. They made a rare and extraordinary finding, Carrie. Justice Stephen Mansfield, one of the most conservative law and order justices on the court, writing for the majority decision, said that police and prosecutorial misconduct has tainted your entire case from the outset and that no confidence can be placed in your first two convictions <clears throat> as a direct result of it. Two other justices, Baird and Overstreet, joined in the opinion, writing that the prosecutors had engaged in fraud and fraudulent behavior to win conviction at any cost. Wow. That was the phone call you got. And the phone call, I almost remember the guard's name, Gargo. All right, this is what made that phone call so scary. And I was crestfalling, and I said, remember your faith, Carrie. Yeah. Uh, let nothing, uh, let, let, no, no, let, let nothing, nothing can destroy you now. Right. Nothing, let, let go. So I said to myself, when the guard came to myself, kicked my cell door, Cook, uh, you got a phone call in, in, in the uh, uh, captain, sergeant's office. And I said, oh, see, I said, only one left is my mom. My mom right. has now died. And I just I hold, held my head up because this is what you need to know. The only time you get called to the office or the chaplain's office, right. it's one or two things. It's a death in the family or you've got an execution date and you have to sign the papers over who picks up your property right. post-execution. Post and I didn't have an execution date. So this meant my mom was dead. So mm -hmm. when I went in there and, and, and Captain West, that's who was there, uh, uh, says – uh, Cook, your lawyer's on the phone. I thought, what? Well, this is new. A lawyer's going to call me and tell me my mom's. Yeah, right. Carrie, don't cry. Be strong. You can do this. Just take deep breath. Hello? Carrie, good morning. This is Paul Nugent. Have you heard? Heard what? He said, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reversed your conviction today. 
I said, what? He said, they overturned your conviction, Carrie. I'm going to get you out. I said, what? It's like when my dad called. I couldn't hear anymore. I'm trying not to hear it. And I, he's talking. And I said, what they reverse it on? Because the first time they reversed it on a punishment phase issue, right. they had to try the whole case again. Not nowadays. Nowadays, if they reverse it on a punishment phase, they just go back and try the punishment phase. Right. The guilt or innocence, you're already guilty. It's established. Yeah. So they're just deciding, does he live or, or does she die? So now, but I got lucky because back then, that's what saved my life, having to try the whole case over. So I said, yeah, 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 but uh, what did they reverse it on? And he said, and when he read that, part, he said, let me just read it, Carrie. And he, when he read that, you should have saw me in that office, man. And they didn't say nothing because this prison death row is hardcore. It's yes, sir, no, sir, either. no nonsense people. You, it's yeah. not like TV going back to what you asked me, Leah. You'll get your right. teeth, you'll, 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 you'll get your teeth handed to you and replaced by dentures. You can't smart off to a guard. You can't talk that smack that they do in movies and books. And so uh, I started yelling, no, are you kidding me? Are you serious? And Captain West. And Wooten, Officer Wooten, and the sergeants in there, they were all smiling because they already heard. They knew. So when they come to get me, Steve, yeah. when they come to get me, I'll never forget it. It's a, it's a Travis County, I mean, it's a, it's a Smith County deputy named Travis. Uh -huh. His last name is Travis. He comes and gets me. All right. And we're, we're going down the hallway. They're handcuffed behind my back. They're taking me to the visitation room to dress out into the street clothes that they, right. they give you for bench warrants. Yeah. You know, they're, they're real crappy looking, but <laughs> anyway, so they, I go back and as we're walking down this long hallway, like I walked to Chaplain Timmons, which my eyes hurt because uh, my eyes weren't used to far right. distances, just close up. And when you, 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 you go several years without seeing anything more than your hands yeah. and, and look down the road and see if it doesn't give you a, a migraine, painful headache. Yeah. And so I'm going down the hallway like chaplain. I'm getting these flashbacks, complex PTSD when my brother was murdered and, uh, I'm going down this hallway, and these guards are just it, right out of a movie. They just keep joining the list: lieutenants, captains, majors, joining the list. And we're in this long. They come out to see you as you're leaving. This so. long parade. They don't speak. They don't say a word. This long parade of officers, guards, captains, and you know, working in a system mm -hmm. that never happens. No. That this was extraordinary exception to the rule. And I'm looking at that, I'm getting paranoid. What the hell is going on here? So we go in there to dress out and and one of the guards, uh, uh, Travis says to him, he says, uh, wow, I knew he was pretty sick, but I know he was this dangerous. Is he that bad back there? Yeah. He's that dangerous? What? He said, no, we know he's never coming back. He's yeah. innocent. And Travis was shocked. He said, wow. And then when I got back to the Smith County Jail like a week later, yeah. you know, he came to my cell one day. I was, again, held in solitary. The same guy. Yeah, they Travis. took you from death row back to Smith County to release you, basically. Back to another side cell. Yeah. Back to yeah. another side cell. And he comes up to my cell one day because I've never seen him before or after that. Yeah. He says, Cook, he said, you know, I, I got to tell you this. He said, when I when I came to get you, remember? I said, yes, sir. He said, when those guards started coming out of nowhere down the hall and joining, going with us, I thought you were dangerous and, and, and that people were scared of you. Right. And he said, when they told me what they did, they were coming because you weren't coming back. They believed you were innocent. He said, 
I know there's got to be something to this because those people never would have done that. These were ranking officials. I don't know what you did in prison, but these people believe in you, and I do too. That's a pretty amazing story. And then one day, uh, uh, Sergeant Herdon, Herdon, H-E-R-D-O-N, she's a sergeant now. They promoted her, an African-American jailer. She comes to myself, Cook, get uh, get dressed. They want to see you downstairs. And I go downstairs. I walk in the sheriff's office. There's Paul Nugent. There's Jim McCluskey. There's Sheriff J.B. Smith. There's Chief Bedingfield. A couple of other sheriff's deputies. And Jim says, Kerry, sit down. He says, get me out, Kerry. I said, what? He said, get me out. And the sheriff, J.B. Smith, says, Sergeant, take take, take Cook, uh, take Kerry over there and, and dress him out, put him in his street clothes. And I couldn't believe my words. I'm hearing, <laughs> I come back in the same suit that I had gone to that trial in that convicted me. And I'm sitting 20 down. years before, they had the, the same, same suit, suit they are waiting for? Yeah, you. yeah. Oh. And my mom runs up to me and hugs me. And I like to tell the kids that my mom forgave me for all my teenage mistakes. And I went home with my mom that day. But um, the very this is something I, I should tell you. And I think it's important to understand that the stress never left me. That honest yeah. to God... Honest to God, there's no way I'm supposed to be alive. I've lived with the most mind-boggling stress, uh, intention, anxiety any human being uh, could ever hope to live for. So I get out. I go to my mama's house in Tecula, Texas. She lives out in like in the woods on a highway. Right. And uh, I'm sitting out on the front porch. I, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. I still, I swear, I swear I cannot believe it. So right. I'm sitting on the porch, cars are going by, and my mama screams from inside the, it's like 10 o'clock at night. Son, come on in. You got to get to bed now. And mm-hmm. I said, no, mama. Are you coming in? I said, mama, I, I say it better in the book, but I said, uh, uh, I can't. I just, any minute now, they're going to come for me. I want it to last as long as it can. Mm. Uh, and so, I did finally go and go to bed, but uh, everything the next morning, the chirping of birds, the bark. I hadn't touched the tree. I haven't touched grass. I've been in concrete for over 20 years, right. and I'm, I'm touching the tree. I'm out. You heard the joke, tree huggers. I was a tree hugger. <laughs> and I'm, 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 tr- I'm kissing the bark. I'm kissing the ground. I'm just I'm the chirping birds early morning, the sparrows, the mockingbird. Yeah. I'm just totally shocked, and here's what's going on in the background, Phil. Imagine this, what I'm about to tell you. And there's news clips of it mm-hmm. in the background. K- KLTV, Channel 7, Tyler, which was never my friend. Neither was KTEK, Channel uh, 56, Tyler. The, the prosecution is filing a motion with Judge Jones today. They said that Kerry Max Cook is a drug drug addict. He's he's done heroin, uh, cocaine, and uh, he's raped other women. He's dangerous. Uh, he will kill again. They're asking that he be brought back. His his bond be set at, at two million dollars. Uh, and uh, and so I hear that, and I, I'm I, I, I'm terrified. And then six o'clock, here's a juror. Here's a juror. They blacken in her face. Mm-hmm. And they're arguing, I'm going to kill again. There'll be bodies littered from one end of the state to the next if they let me out. And she she says, I don't understand. The sheriff is, and this is what J.B. Smith, the day I walked out, J.B. Smith was being interviewed, Mm -hmm. and he was telling the media, oh, no, he wasn't a problem. He's a model. He was a model inmate. Never Mm -hmm. bothered anyone, never caused, gave us any trouble. Yes, sir, and no, sir. He, he, He was a model inmate. 
And he's saying that about me. I'm shocked too. It's true, but this mm. is the sheriff, yeah. you know, out to get me. And so read this juror, black and in face, says, says to KLTV, says, I don't understand. Sheriff Smith says what a model inmate he was. And well, you know, we had problems with it. There were some concerns after we convicted him and sentenced him to death. And we were in the jury room and wondering if we'd done the right thing because it wasn't a lot of evidence. Yeah. But, you know, we had doubts and Sheriff Smith comes in there and he tells us, he said, I can see it on your faces, but you did the right thing. He just confessed to us. He told us he did it. And we're going out to find where he buried the body parts. So she says, she says, someone's so dangerous, how'd they let him out? And now why is J.B. Smith acting like he's his friend? What a model inmate he was. Mm -hmm. After telling us he confessed and he was dangerous. Mm -hmm. He needed to be executed. We did the right thing. It's a 1978 juror. Yeah. yeah. From the original trial. Carrier is released after the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturns his conviction in the third trial. In November 1996, he is released to his mother's house, but the county decides to try him again because they had to cover their shortcomings. In the 1999, fourth trial was moved to Bastrop, Texas, and there's new DNA evidence that brings up Mayfield as a suspect. You might remember James Mayfield. All right, so let's go wow. to the fourth trial then. They, they moved this over to Bastrop, Bastrop County. The worst place I could have yeah, been tried in America, the most conservative state in Texas. Conservative County, County. Uh, the federal prison there in Bastrop. And so the, the thinking was that they moved you there to try to draw a jury pool of people that would re return you to prison, return you to death row. And so, in fact, uh, some of it, somebody in your legal team heard, overheard jurors talking in the hallway that basically, yeah, we've come to right this wrong, put this guy back where this he belongs. This technicality, belong. yeah. Yeah. Put him back on death row. All we got to do is straighten that out. That's what they thought they were there for. Yes. So your people are hearing this. Um, you, the, you, you, you offered a DNA sample because they also had found, uh, a, they found semen in the, the woman's panties. And so you said, I'll, I'll give a DNA sample. I know it's not going to be mine. Yeah. And I so, bet you it's going to be Mayfield's. So at that point, they knew they didn't have anything, and so they offer you a plea deal, something along those lines, right? Yes, they 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 said they offered uh, a series of plea deals. Right. Uh, uh, one one of them was uh, plead guilty to to murder, a forty year sentence, go back to prison, process it, and you'll get out. Yeah. Another one was uh, 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 there there were a couple of them. And one of the last ones was just plead guilty to murder. Right. And uh, sign a stipulation of evidence that, that, that should there be a trial, the state's evidence would prove you're guilty beyond right. a reasonable doubt. So say it to defend it and we'll let you out. I told the pro this is on the record. Yeah. I told the prosecutors, uh, David Dobbs and Jack Skeens and my defense lawyers, Paul Nugent, I said, I'll go back to death row and be executed before I'll plead guilty to a crime I didn't commit. Right. I won't, I won't, I won't. I won't do this for all the freedom in the world. And that's the last place I wanted to go yeah. back to. So uh, what happened, uh, I took like an Alfred plea. It was no admission of guilt. And mm. this is what's significant. This is what you need to hear that has not been published in a way that uh, in layman's terms where people can understand. Leah, Phil, Steve, in America, in any courtroom in America, not Texas, but every and anywhere, in all plea deals, 
they have what's called a mandatory stipulation of evidence. What right. this means, the state says the, the the state would call A, B, C, D, E, F as a witness, right. and and such such evidence would testify to this and that and establish the guilt of the the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. So say it, the defendant sign here. That's mandatory. There, right. you, you can't get out. You can't accept the deal, no matter what you say, unless you sign it. Standard I, operating procedure, as it yeah. says in your book. That's the way it was. The way it was done. And you yeah. said, "No, I'm not signing." I anything told the like prosecutor that. that was a backdoor. That was a backdoor confession. I said, "I will never. I'll go back. Put me back on death row right. and execute me." So. I didn't sign the state stipulation. Lawyers have told me ever since I've been out, Carrie, your 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 conviction is not, not even valid because they can't do that. You have to sign that. You have to agree to that. But I didn't. So uh, I re I said they have to rewrite it. That should that that uh, the evidence would would not, I didn't agree that it would establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. So let me read it from out of your book. Soon we stood before the judge's bench in a half circle. The courtroom was packed once again. Then after having lied about me all the way to the United States Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., portraying me as a modern-day Jack the Ripper, the Smith County DA's office caved. Jack Sheen and David Dobbs accepted my revision. They accepted your version of the deal. The stipulation of evidence. And look, and here's what, here's why. We knew Sandra was with me then, and we knew they were panicked. They wouldn't let, I mean, it was everything except, you know, can we take you to Whataburger too? I mean, they, they, uh, even though they'd had it their way, I'm sure they were used to that, but they, they were willing to do anything. It was all over their faces. It was panic. I was going to the restroom. Jack Skeens came out of the restroom. It freaked me out. Oh, he's going to say I confessed or something. And he says, Mr. Cook, uh, how you doing? As he walks out, I'm going, Oh, are you kidding me? So anyway, <laughs> they would have done anything, but here's the thing. The DNA was being tested by the DPS crime lab in Garland, Texas. Right. Mayfield had already told them it was going to be his. Yeah. They knew it. And the reason I know that, that it's not an opinion, the day I get out, uh, the media is right there on Skeens and Dobbs. Hey, you just said that you wouldn't stop till quote unquote, he was back on death row and executed. Now you're letting him out free? Right. And he's, and he said, this is the quote from the Bastrop advertiser. We had to let him go. Preliminary uh, uh, test on the DNA is showing not going to be favorable to the state. It was absolutely unequivocal. They right. knew the DNA was not mine. Right. The DNA belonged to James Mayfield. They knew it, and they were obligated to tell me that because I would have got acquitted. It would have been over so instead of 25 years later still facing another new trial. So today, how does it stand? Today it stands. I'm convicted of murder. I can't uh, get a job. I can't uh, rent an apartment. I can't even rent a hotel room. Any background check um, labels me as a murderer. And so uh, where it stands today, I'm before the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals uh, asking them to grant me actual innocence, and in this case, once and for all, but they may deny that. And just uh, uh, the reason I got a new trial was based on the admitted perjury of James Mayfield, April 5th, 2016. He admitted he lied in every trial, every proceeding ever had. Right. And some of his perjury is very material, material, very critical. Uh, a lot of details don't want to go into that, waste time. But so that no, the, the state agreed that I didn't have a fair trial and the convict, third conviction should be thrown out. That's before the Court of Criminal Appeals too, but right. also actual innocence. So you and, are, you are, go and, ahead. And more, more DNA testing was done, more advanced testing. Right. And it's not only the semen of James Mayfield on the underwear, 
it's his skin cells, his epithelial cells. And the underwear was pulled off of her. And he had lied. Cut he said the only off. time he had last, she was like a daughter to him, that uh, uh, she was a daughter, and that right. the only time he had, had sex with her was like three weeks before when he broke up to her, that he hadn't had any sexual relations. She was like a daughter. It appears really strange that the county never pursued James Mayfield as a suspect. However, he was a respected member of the community, head librarian at Texas Eastern University, and there may have been family ties and connections between his attorney and local government officials. Kerry Cook, with his troublemaker reputation and his criminal record, made for a more convenient suspect. Today, the crime is officially unsolved. James Mayfield died in 2016. While what happened to Carrie is appalling, we cannot forget that a beautiful young woman, Linda Jo Edwards, was brutally murdered. That's right. Carrie claims that his fight has, quote, never been just about me, but also to bring justice for her murder, unquote. We asked him if her family has ever been in connection with him. He replied, quote, I was speaking at an event in Houston, Texas, Afterwards, one of her relatives, I think it may have been her niece, came up to me and told me that all along she believed Shyster Jackson and that I was the killer. After listening to me speak, she now believes that I am innocent. Though he signed a plea agreement in 1999, Carrie still has this crime on his record. He can't get a job or even rent an apartment in his own name. Sandra has to work two jobs in order to support them. In April of this year, 2022, he applied to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals to be declared actually innocent. That decision is expected in mid-September. At least set Mr. Cook's conviction aside. Let him start his life at 66 years old. So that's what you've appealed to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals this this year? It's it's six years now. Not, Not only that, but that Judge Carter erred in denying you actual innocence, that he didn't look at the record in its totality, that if he saw all the evidence, then it's clear. And he excluded evidence. He excluded actual innocence evidence. He said these were affidavits from like Dr. Frederick Mears, who Mayfield uh, told him the day of the murder. He said, Paula Rudolph's probably at the police station identifying me right now. She saw me in the apartment. That's in his affidavit. And that's true. She was doing exactly that. And then he said, I need help beating a polygraph. I mean, all those kind of things he yeah. excluded. Paula Rudolph's testimony uh, where, where David uh, David Dobbs had told uh, uh, Dallas Morning News David Hanners when the DNA was found, David Dobbs told David Hanners, a award decorated uh, journalist for the yeah. Dallas Morning News, he won the Pulitzer Prize. He won the Texas Bar Association's Civil Gavel Award for his work in this case. He said, David Dobbs told him, he signed an affidavit. He told him Texas Monthly. It's in a story. He said, David Dobbs told him, no, 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 no. This semen could only belong to the killer. If we get a result on this, we got the killer. And then right. when it proved not to be mine, it meant nothing. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. So it's kind of like everything I've been saying. Whatever they find out that's exculpatory, it gets spun into somehow being it proves he's guilty. Right. I can't figure it out. It's mind blowing. The they don't. Can, they don't want to admit that they 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 messed up. Look, sitting on death row, even after I got uh, threw away all my legal material, mm-hmm. you know, I had to come to some conclusion. Why? Why has this happened to me? What? What? What caused it? And I believed in law enforcement. I believed in 
and you know, I was raised a very conservative Baptist family. Right. And I always search for why, why, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? And then the more I'd hear about exculpatory evidence being suppressed, the more they lied. I, I had to rethink it. Why me? Here it is. This is the only conclusion anyone could reach. Whether it's A.D. Clark, his first cousin, Jack Skeens, David Dobbs, uh, Eddie Clark, the detective, Doug Collard, uh, Ron Scott, all the, all the primetime players that be. This is a case, as shocking as this is to sound, and maybe no one would believe me because you have to live it to believe it. This is the case, much like the proverbial doctor called in malpractice, they tried to bury their mistake, and they're still trying to bury it to this day. And that's why I think it's possible I could be retried and put back in prison. And I'm fighting from death row. The book is called Chasing Justice, My Story of Freeing Myself After Two Decades on Death Row for a Crime I Didn't Commit by Carrie Max Cook. It's going to come out on Kindle soon. Is that right? Hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, it's not yet. we got to still put that together. But, uh, you can find it on Amazon and find it other places. Thank That's you right. guys so much for coming and spending this time with us. And, and uh, we're honored that you selected us to tell your story, too. Well, thank you, Steve. There are so many more aspects of Carrie's case and the four trials that we were not able to touch on in our two episodes. While Kerry has been acquitted of any wrongdoing, he is not legally innocent. He is still a convicted murderer. This greatly affects his life. I mean, just imagine yeah. when you get pulled over for a traffic violation, the officer looks you up in the system before they ever approach your car. When they approach Kerry, they think they are approaching a convicted murderer. Right. That's why this next court hearing is so important. Kerry is hoping that two things happen, that they throw out his third wrongful murder conviction based on the April 5th, 2016 admissions of perjury by the original prime suspect, James Mayfield, and that they either order a new trial or make the finding of, quote, actual innocence, which would end once and for all Kerry's 45-year legal nightmare. So this has been going on for 45 years since he was he was picked up for this crime uh, that he didn't do, and yet it still hangs over him. This is almost his entire life. Yeah, it's yes. it's unbelievable. Yes. So yeah, yeah, he's 66 now, or 65, I think now. If you would like to help, Carrie asks that letters or emails be sent to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals or to any Tyler area newspaper, such as the Tyler Morning Telegraph, on Carrie's behalf to please have him declared legally innocent. We will have more information on how to do this in our show notes. Phil here reminding you to check out our Facebook and inter- Instagram pages at Remnants 2 Podcast. Drop us an email at staycurious at remnants2.com just to say hi or let us know about any topics you would like to hear us cover in an upcoming episode. Remnants 2 is created by me, Leah Lamp, and is now a part of Rook and Raven Ventures. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Singfeld. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. And again, we thank Carrie Cook and his wife, Sandra, for coming into the studio and being with us. Absolutely. Well, now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your friends and your family. Until next time, remember, choose to be kind and and always stay curious. curious.